Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 9 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of the seat in front of you. It's that blue book. And Genesis 9 is right near the beginning. I believe it's on page 5 or somewhere close. So if you're just joining us, we've been walking through this book of Genesis from the very first page of the Bible. So we wanted to see how did this all start? <laughs> what are the foundations that underpin the whole rest of our Bibles? So we've already covered chapters 1 through 8, and we're going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. So if you turn there, I am actually going to back us up just a hair. So actually move your eyes back up to chapter 8, verse 20. We're going to catch the tail end of chapter 8 and then read 9, 1 through 17. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, 
This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning I wonder, have you ever watched one of those movies where somewhere near the end there's usually some kind of this epic battle scene I mean, usually it maybe involves aliens, maybe it involves just people, maybe it involves superheroes, but they're just utterly destroy a city. Like there's this fight going on and next thing you know, like cars are exploding, buildings are on fire, fire hydrants are burst, and there's just this utter, utter destruction, but the heroes have survived, right? So you look around, everything is just destroyed, But there, out of this mess, come the main characters of the story. Sometimes strutting, sometimes limping, but they have survived. And the movie ends with these main characters just kind of walking away from this devastation as though everything has now been wrapped up nice and neat. But I don't know about you, but movies like that leave me with these lingering questions as I'm watching things in the background still exploding, still on fire. I'm wondering... What about the devastated city? Like, sure they survive, but the place is trashed. Like, what is going on here? Where do things go from here? Has the problem actually been solved? Or will this happen again? And you know that the answer to that question depends on if there's a sequel planned, right? But that's what I'm wondering is, what, is it over? Like, is, isn't there more? Don't I need to know where the story goes? Well, here... In chapter 9, we find ourselves on the back end of the worst devastation the world has ever seen. And I don't say that as hyperbole. This is the worst devastation the world has ever seen. Remember, the whole earth had been unraveled in the flood. The waters of decreation had covered everything and destroyed everything that had the breath of life. That means every animal and every person except those on the ark. They had been rescued from God's judgment against sin, and they emerged from the devastation of the flood like those heroes that we talked about in the movie. So here come the lone survivors out of the chaos and devastation, but as they walk out of the ark, it's not all tied up nice and neat. We're left with some massively big questions. Questions like, does God actually value human life? After all, he did just wipe out almost all of it. So are we to take away from that that life is a cheap thing to God? Something to be discarded at his whim? Another question, is God still mad? His just anger at human sin is what caused and provoked this flood. So what confidence can we have that God won't just do this again in a couple years? Are floods that destroy everything like this just going to be a regular part of life in a fallen and sin-cursed world? Well, the good news for us is that God is not going to leave those questions unanswered. In our passage this morning, God gives us a loud and clear answer as to how he values life and the confidence we can have that the flood won't have a sequel. So now we're actually going to pick up the story at the end of chapter 8 in verse 20. So look, look back there with me again. Verse 20 of chapter 8. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Alright, so here we got Noah. And when Noah gets off the ark, what's the first thing he does? He worships. He builds this altar and he offers a sacrifice to God. And we see here that it's called a burnt offering. This is one type of sacrifice. And we're going to find out later in the book of Leviticus, that's two books from now, that a burnt offering can be offered for several different reasons. Sometimes it's offered just out of thankfulness, just gratitude to God for what he's done. It can be offered in repentance, sorrow over sin. Or it can just be offered out of dedication, saying, God, I I just want to reaffirm that you are my God and I am yours, so I'm offering this. But the most significant reason that a burnt offering was made was to turn away God's wrath from people. In Leviticus chapter 1, we read that when a burnt offering was made, a person would bring a sacrifice, they bring an animal without blemish, spotless, good condition animal and they would put their hand on the animal and this animal it says then quote would be accepted for him to make atonement for him so the the person sacrificing puts their hand on the animal as though to say the wrong in me is transferred to this animal and then what do they do with the animal they kill the animal and they throw the blood against the altar and burn the animal and when they do that, listen to Leviticus 1.9. It says they burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So what we see is that when God smells the aroma of this sacrifice, as it were, now it's not literally the, the odor, it's, it's just a, a way that God's given us a picture of how he's receiving and responding to this sacrifice. But when he smells the aroma of this sacrifice, offered in the place of his sinful people, it pleases him. And his anger is turned away. Atonement, it says, is made. So the blood that has been shed has satisfied God's wrath against that person's sin and his heart that was once grieved by their sin is now reconciled to them again. Atonement for their sin has been made. That's what a burnt offering is. And that's what Noah is doing here. He's offering a sacrifice, both of thanksgiving for God's gracious rescue of him and his family, but also one that turns away God's wrath for their sin. Because we need to see here, sin wasn't wiped out in the flood, right? Sinners were wiped out, but verse 21 tells us that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sin got on board the ark with Noah and his family, and it came out the doors with Noah and his family. And so, There's still sin. God's heart is still provoked towards sin. So what's the remedy? It says, but when Noah offers his sacrifice, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And God then 
after the sacrifice is made, God then resolves something in his heart. The sacrifice prompts, leads to, causes, you might say, this response, this resolve in God's heart. And I say in his heart because notice, God's not talking to Noah yet. He will in chapter 9, but right now this is God's internal monologue. This is just like we saw back in chapter 6, when after God saw the wickedness of the earth, he resolved to himself, speaking to himself, he said, I will blot out man. God sees something and he says, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. I will blot out man. But now, God smells the sacrifice and he resolves something very different. Now he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I strike down every living creature as I've done. So what has changed from 6-7 where God is resolving something saying, that's it wiping them all out, to now here in 821, God's resolving something saying, I will never wipe them out again. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. God's judgment has been poured out. On the wicked, it's been poured out in the flood. And for those to whom God has shown grace, it's been poured out instead on a substitute in sacrifice. This sacrifice has turned away God's anger over their sin. And so the question that we need to ask then is, well, why does God need to resolve to never destroy all mankind again? Like, what would prompt him to, to think of that or to say, this is something I need to do? It's because man hasn't changed. Their hearts were still sinful. It's not as though, like, oh, remedied the problem, no more sin. He's like, nope, the people that got off the ark aren't that different from the people that were there before the flood. But now God promises to withhold worldwide judgment for as long as the earth remains. God commits himself to preserving, you're going to hear that word a lot, to preserving human life as long as the world endures. Now here's something that I think is fascinating here. Is, did you notice, did you notice that God foresaw that a sacrifice would be needed? And he didn't just foresee it, he provided the sacrifice? What did Noah offer in this burnt offering? Some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. Why does Noah have these animals to offer? Because God told him to specifically take them on the ark. Why? Because God knew a sacrifice would be needed and he both planned it and provided it. And this this is what he's done for us, friends. This is what God has done for us in Christ. 1 Peter 1 tells us that we, you and I, who are in Christ, have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And listen to what Peter says after that. He the precious lamb without blemish or spot who was a sacrifice, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Peter saying, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, God planned his sacrifice. 
And then he was made manifest in the last time for our sake. God provided his sacrifice. God said, they're going to need a lamb, and I've got one. And I'm going to send him way back before the foundations of the world. I've got a lamb. So just like he said, Noah, you're going to need it, and I'm going to make sure that it gets on the ark so that when it's time, you'll have it for the sacrifice. I have a lamb so that when the fullness of time has come, the lamb will be there. God foresaw the need and he planned a sacrifice and he provided it. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Just like God planned and provided the sacrifice Noah needed to turn away God's wrath and ensure his commitment to not destroy him in spite of his ongoing sin, God planned and provided Jesus to do the same for us. Jesus turned away God's anger by bearing it in our place as a sacrifice. And because of Jesus, God's heart is eternally committed to not destroying us in spite of our sin. So already, here in these first few verses, we see, yes, God values life. Yes, he does, so much so that he provided a sacrifice to save life, and then he commits himself to preserving life, even though sin remains. That's the first things we see here. Now, let's move on to chapter 9. Here in chapter 9, we see God's call to his rescued people to produce and protect life. Produce and protect life. So before, we just had God talking to himself, his internal monologue. Now he's going to talk to Noah and his sons. So look at verses 1 to 3. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now hopefully as as we're reading that, you're hearing these words and phrases and you're saying, man, that sounds familiar. Because what we have here is Genesis 1 revisited. Remember, in the flood, we said God decreated the world, and then he recreated it. So last week, we, we looked more at, we saw how the earth was covered in waters, just like Genesis 1, 2. There, it's covered in waters, and then dry ground appears, and then plants, and animals, and mankind. But think about a few more similarities. This keeps going throughout Noah's whole saga here. Both Noah and Adam are men who walked with God. Adam in the garden. We're told that in Genesis 6 about Noah. Both are men to whom God brought all the animals of the world. He brought all the animals to Adam to name, and he brought all the animals to Noah to save. Both men have three sons. Both have the entire human race descended from them. So there's all these points of contact between Noah and Adam. So what we're meant to see now is that we have this Noah, this new Adam, and he's in a new creation. And when we see that, is it any surprise to us 
that what we see in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, is Noah receiving the same blessing and same commission as Adam. Listen to Genesis 1.28. So this is back in chapter 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sounds pretty familiar to chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, doesn't it? And this is not just a, a cool coincidence. This is really significant because what we are seeing is that God is not abandoning his plan to fill the earth with image bearers. He hasn't changed. He didn't scrap it in the flood and say, well, that didn't work. Plan B. He's still committed to the same plan. Even though mankind has been so sinful, God has not revoked his blessing. Instead, he reinstitutes his blessing to Noah. In case there's any doubt, like, is that still in effect? That blessing that God gave to mankind in Genesis 1, where he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply? We might be left wondering, is that still valid? Or did that expire at the flood? And he says, no, I need you to know that's still the plan and that's still my provision. So he says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, what is God fundamentally calling him to do? If you boil that down, be fruitful, multiply, he's calling him to produce life. God's calling him to flourish, thrive, and he blesses them so that they'll be able to do just that. Yes, he's going to bring judgment against sin, but that is what the Bible calls elsewhere. It calls judgment his strange work. That's not like his go-to MO. What God is about is he's a God of life. He is a living God. In him is life. He's an ever-flowing fountain of life. He gives life. He sustains life. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And here, once again, God is calling his people to be life producers. God is effusive with life. He, we need to see this. The devil, as Paul prayed, or as oh, you're good, Phil, but you're not Paul. As Phil prayed, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But God says, I came that they have life. Now notice that this same blessing and call bookends this paragraph in verse 7. It ends the way it starts. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply on it. He's wanting us to see that's what's framing this whole first paragraph is God is calling his people to be bringers of life. Fill the earth with life. Christians are to be thoroughly and robustly pro-life. Yes, that absolutely includes opposing abortion, but it means so much more. We want to see life increase greatly and multiply and fill the earth. And we want life not just to exist, but to flourish and thrive. And we want not just life, but eternal life. We want to be fruitful and multiply not only people, but disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus came to bring us life, we now go to bring his life everywhere. So just like Noah and his family, as the people of God who've been saved by grace, we seek to produce life. And notice here that God doesn't just call us to produce life, he also provides for our lives. 
which is just what he did in Genesis 1. Look down at chapter 9, verse 2. I want your eyes to be there, but now I want you to listen with your ears to chapter 1, verse 29. Listen for the similarities. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. See what's going on here? Just like in the garden with Adam and Eve, here in chapter 9, God is providing food for his people. He's saying, I'm, I'm calling you to be fruitful and multiply. I'm calling you to produce life, and I'm going to provide for your life. Only now, as he provides food in chapter 9, it's not just plants. Somebody out there is like, amen. Somebody out there is like, amen. Okay. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So, I mean this sincerely, that when you enjoy your burger, or your barbecued chicken, or your taco, or the pepperoni on your pizza, remember that God is the one who gave us animals for food. And notice one other similarity to the garden here. Remember how back in Genesis 2, God said they could eat from every tree, right? He went out of his way. He said, like, there's all these trees and plants. You can eat from all of them except one. There was one exclusion. Now, what does God say? You can eat from every animal, everything that moves, but there's one exclusion. What's the exclusion? Verse 4. But... You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. God says, you can eat animals, but you cannot eat the blood. Why? Is that arbitrary? Is that just like a weird rule that God threw in there? No. He says it's because the blood is its life. And life belongs to God. As the maker and giver of life, all life is his. And out of reverence for him, people are not to eat blood because of this link between life and blood. Now, we're going to see that this rule eventually becomes part of the law. The law that God gives his people in Leviticus. Listen to Leviticus 17.10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So God's serious about this. He says, do not eat it. Why? Next verse. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now there's a lot going on here and there's still some things that are they're hard to completely put into words for us. We, we have the general sense but here's my attempt that God is forbidding us from eating blood because blood is life and life belongs to him. So he takes this thing. Blood, right, is fundamental to keeping us alive. You cannot live without blood. If your blood leaves your body, you are not alive. Blood, he says, is not for eating. Instead, it's reserved for something more important. 
Blood is what God says he has given for us on the altar to make atonement for our souls. Blood does something that nothing else can do. Blood purifies. Only blood can pay for sins. And we see the same thing in the New Testament in Hebrews 9, right? Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's why that verse we read earlier from Peter, why Peter tells us that we've been ransomed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why must it be blood? Why couldn't it be gold? Why couldn't it be silver? Why couldn't it be leaves of a tree? Because the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. That's Leviticus 17. What we see in Scripture is that the wages of sin is death, and so life must be given to pay that debt. Life must be given, which means if life is blood and blood is life, blood must be shed. So when Jesus gave his blood for us, he was giving his life. He was giving himself. He gave the only thing that could make atonement for our souls. His teaching couldn't atone for us. No amount of money he could have acquired could have paid for our sin. He gave the only thing that makes atonement for souls. So blood belongs to God because it represents life, and life belongs to God. Therefore, God tells Noah, you must not eat blood because it is a way they are to protect life and the sanctity of life. We often talk about sanctity of life. My guess is most of you aren't talking about not eating blood, but God has that in mind here. But that's not the only way we're told to protect life. Look at verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So first he tells you, you may not eat the blood of animals, but he says, you may not shed the blood of people. And if they do, God himself will hold them accountable. Notice there's three times in there he says, I will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning. I will require it. And notice it's even the animals are held accountable to God. Did you catch that? If an animal kills a person, they have to answer to their creator. He's going to require a reckoning from both beast and man. And although it's God who requires the reckoning, notice how that reckoning takes place. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So we're not going to get into this, but I want you to know that this is part of the biblical basis for a government having the authority for capital punishment. Because God here ordains this, that it's, he's using human instruments to met out his justice. Now, Christians today can and do disagree about how the death penalty ought to be administered, or if it can be done so justly in today's world. But we need to acknowledge and see here that the Bible does give us a category for it here in Genesis 9. We also see another foundational principle of, of government and law 
is we see that God is establishing this idea of, here's, here's your fancy Latin words, lex talionis. Lex talionis. That just means the law of retribution in kind. You might know this principle better as an eye for an eye. Right? It's the idea that punishment should be given in proportion that corresponds to the crime. Now, it's often framed of it in our day and age as, as an overly harsh system. We think of it as like, oh wow, you're going to do what to that person? It's actually the opposite. It's not a, something that heightens punishment. It restrains, it limits vengeance and retribution, saying you can't just be unjust in your retaliation. Now, why might God need to institute this? Well, what have we seen? Genesis 4. We got this guy named Lamech. What did he promise? That it, if somebody hits him, is he going to hit him back? No. He's going to kill him. You hit me, I kill you. You do something to me, you get it back 77-fold. That is not eye for an eye. But that's what sin causes us to do. Is we don't want justice, we want vengeance. You did a little to me, I'm going to do a lot to you. It's the way of Cain. But here, God says, no. I'm going to put limits and restraints on your sin. And so he institutes proportionate justice. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, that is the just and proportionate penalty. Which makes us ask the question, well, why is that such a big deal? I mean, we take it for granted, but if you ever stop and think like, why is murder such a massive crime? Why is it something that God gets so worked up here that he singles it out? There's not many laws he's given yet. And he says, one of the things you need to know is if you kill someone, I'm holding you for it. You're going to answer to me and by man shall your blood be shed. Why is it such a big deal? Well, he tells us. Because God made man in his own image. God made us to be like him and to reflect him and to represent him. So when someone or something, animals, attacks a man or a woman, they are attacking that which is most like God. An assault on an image bearer is an assault on the God whose image they bear. And God places tremendous value on the life of every image bearer. He will not stand for their life to be taken because life belongs to God. And so Noah gives... God gives Noah these rules to protect life. So what we see here in verses 1 to 7 is that God places a high value on life. And we see God's call to his people to be makers of life, not takers of life. To produce life and to protect life. That's what he calls his people to do. Now in the second part, or the second half of chapter 9 here, this part we're in, In verses 8 to 17, we see God not calling his people to something, but committing himself. And what we see is God commits himself to preserve life. And he does this by making a covenant. So we're going to look at this in two sections. We're going to see what the covenant is in verses 8 to 11, and then at the sign of the covenant in 12 to 17. So first, look at God's commitment to preserve life in verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, 
It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, so that's what God says here. So let's ask a few questions. First question is, what is a covenant? It's not a word we use every day. And this is actually the first time that the word has showed up in scripture. But it's a concept that shapes our whole Bibles. So here's one definition. A covenant is a formal relationship between two or more parties who agree to be bound by certain promises. A formal relationship between two or more parties who agree to be bound by certain promises. It's, it has similarities to a contract. Sometimes people will use that language. But I don't like the contract language because covenants are more personal and relational. They're not cold business dealings. They're, they're relationships. So the example that we're most familiar with today is, of course, marriage. Marriage is a covenant where a husband and a wife enter into a formal relationship. Right? The day before the wedding, there is no formal relationship. You can call each other whatever you want. Boyfriend, girlfriend, you can make up any names you want. But it's not a formal relationship. But marriage is a formal relationship where they are bound by vows of lifelong love and faithfulness. Those vows are promises of how they're going to live out this relationship. That's the covenant they're making. They're saying, we're going to have a relationship. It's now being recognized in the presence of these witnesses. And here's what it's going to look like. That's what you're doing when you say, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for better or worse, you're saying, this is what our relationship will look like. That's a covenant. And all throughout your Bible, God relates to his people through covenants. The most famous ones you probably know are covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, or Israel. It's the same thing. David, and then the best one, the new covenant in Christ. So because God is merciful and gracious, he always initiates these relationships. God comes to people and says, here's how we're going to structure our relationship. Now, covenants typically have obligations for how one or both parties commit to act. Sometimes there's conditions to be met. God says, this will be true if you do this. But sometimes it's simply the promise of one party to another to do something, just like we have here. God's not requiring something. He says, I'm going to do this. So let's ask a few more questions about this covenant. First, who does God make the covenant with? We call this the Noahic covenant. That just means the covenant with Noah. But that's not entirely or not completely true. So who does God make this covenant with? He says it a few different ways. But look at verse 9 again. God said to Noah and his sons, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. He's saying it's for all the living creatures. So his covenant is with mankind and all the things that have the breath of life on them. And this covenant is unique in the Bible, and that is the only one God makes, not just with his people, but with all humanity, with all the world. Here, what God is doing is he's establishing how he's going to relate to his creation. 
So if you're here, what you need to know is whether or not you're a Christian, this covenant is God's promise to you. You may not be in a relationship with God. You may not know Christ. But if you're here, God has a covenant relationship with you because you are something that has breath and lives on his earth. Well, what does God promise in this covenant? Verse 11, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In other words, God commits himself to preserve life. Even though sin will still be in the world and mankind will be deserving of judgment, God promises he's gonna hold it back. And not only will he not destroy the world with a flood again, he promises there will be predictability in the world. In other words, we'll be able to expect the world to work a certain way. Look back up to 8.22. This is where we're getting this. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This seems like such the most obvious fact of life that we just take this for granted. But do you know why you can expect spring to come after winter? Do you know why you can expect that in several hours the sun's going to go down and then you can expect it to come back up tomorrow? It's not just because that's the way it works. It's because God promised it would. That's what keeps the world working the way that we know and expect. So now stop and think with me what God's doing here. Why make this covenant and why make it now? Well, what has just happened? Sin has become so bad in the earth that God's judgment has come and wiped out almost all living things. But God didn't wipe out everyone. Why? Well, we can say because of his grace, yes, but there's something else going on here. Because he already had a promise to keep. What had God promised when sin first entered the world in the garden? When man's sin already caused one judgment to fall. When man's sin led to judgment and curse, God promised an offspring who would crush the head of the serpent and break the curse. And this offspring hasn't come yet. So God is making a covenant that ensures that the world will be preserved until the serpent crusher will come. This promise ensures that life on the earth will keep going until the curse breaker comes to bring us true and lasting life. God is laying the foundations and paving the way for a world where God can keep all his other promises and it preserves life until God provides the true and better Noah who will make a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath. Until God sends the ark that provides refuge from God's judgment against sin. And until God provides a better covenant that promises not just being spared from a flood, but it promises eternal life. God is saying, I'm setting in place the playing field, so to speak, for this all to take place. The stage has been set for the drama of redemption that I'm about to unfold. But this guarantees that the stage will be there. The world will sustain long enough for your Redeemer to come. And this covenant, like many covenants, comes with a sign. Think back to our marriage covenant. What's the sign of your covenant? Your wedding ring. When you see your ring, you're just going about it, it's meant to remind you of the promises you made, the vows you said, oh yeah, this is how my wife and I are gonna live together. So what's the sign of God's covenant with Noah? Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the sign of God's covenant with Noah we see here is what we call a rainbow. Notice (laughs) your Bible does not have the word rainbow. That's not a biblical word. It's just bow. You might read sometimes people think this is meant to be an image that God has taken his his bow, his, his warrior's bow, and has hung it up temporarily saying after this warlike setting of the flood where he has waged war on sin he says i'm putting my bow up i will not fight that way anymore so when god puts this bow in there when the clouds of sin come notice he says when the clouds when i bring clouds so it's still stormy still rainy and when the clouds of sin threaten to wipe us out god sees his bow And remembers his promise to not destroy the world through flood. Now when it says remembers, it's not as though God almost forgets. Like he's ready to unleash it and he's like, oh, right, 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 right. That's not what it means when he remembers. It's that the sign brings to mind his promise and renews his commitment to do what he said. The rainbow is how we know that God will never destroy the world through flood again. And in the same way, The blood of our sacrifice, Jesus, serves to remind our God of his promise to us in the new covenant. So when our sins pile up before God and threaten to bring judgment on us, when those clouds are moving in and we know, though I justly stand accused, yes, I am as evil as you say I am and I deserve this judgment, but when those sins pile up and he's, threatens to bring judgment on us, God sees the blood of Jesus and remembers his covenant to not destroy us, but to preserve our life eternally. Jesus' lifeblood was poured out so that God's wrath could be turned away forever. And we have his promise that no matter what happens, God will never, 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 never break his covenant or take his love away from us. In fact, I want you to hear him promise it. Go ahead and put that slide up here. God says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, And the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's what we're meant to look at Noah and see. That's what this covenant shows us, is that there is a certainty and a steadfastness. And God's saying, as surely as your sun came up this morning, and as surely as you know that summer's coming, and then fall, and then winter, and the spring, even more sure than that can you know my love's not going anywhere. I'm not breaking my covenant. When I said I would deliver you from the wrath to come, I meant it. 
Because God is a covenant-keeping God. Jesus will come back again to judge the living and the dead, as we sang. And the day will come when our faith shall be sight, and the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. But even so, it is well. Why? Do you ever think why we sing that? Here's the judge coming back to judge the living and the dead. And we're saying, oh, when those clouds part and the trump sounds and he's right there, we're saying, even so, it is well. Why? Because Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. So we never need to fear judgment again. That is the good news that Noah's pointing us to that God makes a covenant to say, I will not destroy you people. I will not destroy you. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your covenants. Thank you for this covenant with Noah that ensures that our world works in a way that we just take for granted. And yet, Lord, we know that is according to your wisdom and your power that the things that we just assume actually happen. You set the earth on its foundations. Lord, you make the seasons change. You make hot and cold, day and night, seed time and harvest. Those are gifts of constancy from you, our unchanging God. And you have created a world where life would be preserved, not just until the Redeemer came, but until people like us, 2,000 years later, could hear of him and respond in repentance and faith that we could get into the ark of Christ and say, I don't want to be swept away in the flood of judgment. I want to be rescued by grace, by Christ. And so we thank you for preserving life. And now would you make us a people that values life the way you do? Would we seek to spread life everywhere we go? Would we be the aroma of life to life? We thank you and we pray that you would help us sing this next song with full confidence that no matter what, it is well with our soul. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.